c'est vrai. Je suis un ananas. Now, in the uh, towers of uh, Edmonton... I'm not a Tory, I don't speak on both sides. I do not use crack cocaine, nor am I an addict. to histories and mysteries i'm jessica and i'm still janelle and today we have a second part Ooh. number two Ooh, you've been waiting <laughs> for murder nurses <laughs> murder what it's said on the tin if you came in here for any other reason i'm sorry leave. get out leave immediately you're not wanted here <laughs> go we're here for i don't love you anymore <laughs> We're here exclusively for medical professionals that kill people. And if that's not what you're into, God help you. Yeah. So last time we covered uh, Angels of Mercy, which is people who claim, at least on the surface, that their motives for killing their patients are pure. I had only the best of intentions when I killed that old lady. Killer nurses with a heart of gold. Um, Again, I think it's wise to point out that, like, that is the most socially acceptable possible answer when you're caught smothering old ladies um but who's to say i've never killed numerous patients at a hospital um let he who is without sin cast the first stone into the head (laughs) of a grandmother of 12 (laughs) i was gonna say let he who is without a suspicious rate of death during their shifts on the ward cast that first stone But the second type of angel of death that we're going to talk about, second of three, is sadistic angels of death. So some nurses who kill people don't even pretend that they're in it for mercy killing. They're just in it because they like killing. Um, Just here for the lulls. Just in it. Sometimes for the sexual jollies. Uh, But, you know, also lulls. Also lulls. Jessica, no. Think of the queen. (laughs) Is that supposed to calm me down, Janelle? (laughs) Don't don't cheat on Queen Lizzie the Second with the concept of killing helpless people. Uh, I'm a widow, Janelle. <laughs> I think you got more condolences when the Queen died than her actual family. <laughs> <laughs> uh, people message me. I had people messaging my me to ask if you were okay when Queen Elizabeth died. <laughs> she died on my thirtieth birthday, and like. <laughs> I think I got more messages that were concerned for you than I did, like, 30th birthday greetings. It was like, how is Jessica? How's your weird friend? No, no, not even happy birthday. It was literally just like, is Jessica okay? Does she have a friend to support her? Do we know where she is? I think I took I took the passing with dignity. <laughs> you didn't end up on the news. That's about that's about all that can be said. Some angels of death are literally in it because they enjoy the feeling of having power over helpless people, and they like having the ability to take somebody's life away if they choose to. You know, again, most nurses will not kill you. Uh, most nurses aren't into that shit. They just want to do their job and go home. But unfortunately, caretaking professions do have a tendency to attract a certain subset of people who are just in it because they enjoy the power it gives them over other people. Uh, Professions like teaching, nursing, medicine, social work, 
these are professions that do attract a healthy portion of psychopaths. That's just... Is there a healthy proportion of psychopaths? You know, you just gotta have one or two in the mix to keep things interesting. But you just get people who kind of get that little rush out of, like, taking their time to give you the pain medicine. Or, like, making it clear they don't really believe you. So... Some of these angels of death may get sexual enjoyment or an adrenaline rush from toying with other people's lives. Death is not necessarily always the objective here. Sometimes they just enjoy bringing people to the brink of death and then death occurs because it's very hard to do that with fragile, medically fragile old people. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's edging, right? You need practice. <laughs> mm. That'd be a really good soundbite to just like clip out of context and turn into my <laughs> ringtone when you call me. <laughs> I mean, there's no better context for it to be in. That's the that's the worst possible context. <laughs> Comparing murdering old ladies to edging. Yeah, the- it's bad. It's it's everything is worse for you making those comparisons. <laughs> <laughs> it's the worst possible context. Yeah, it's not good. It's not. It's one of those. It's one of those. You could only make it better. Yeah, there's a lot of clips on this show that are actually worse if you know the context. <laughs> <laughs> They're they're bad out of context, but in context, they're actual crimes. Um, Woof. It's possible that the killers who claim to be mercy killers are actually sadistic killers. If watching old ladies die was the only thing that tickled my ivories, I would probably claim that I'd been trying to end their suffering out of the goodness of my heart. But the ones that actually admit straight up when caught that like, no, I was into this shit. This was, mm, this was it for me. So the one we're going to talk about is um, Jane Toppin. So this is quite an old example of an angel of death. I can tell. Her name's Jane Toppin. Yeah, Jane Toppin. That kind of was the clue right away that we're going back a few centuries. (laughs) Oh, look, it's old Janie Toppin. How's it going, Janie? What are you doing with that knife? (laughs) I mean, that's basically the story. You've kind of, that's it. We can all go home. Um... Accent and all. Uh, you're remarkably close. Jane Toppin was from Boston, Massachusetts in 1854, so she was the youngest of four girls born to an Irish immigrant couple and was named Honora Kelly at birth. So Jane Toppin is not even her final form. Her her original <laughs> name was Honora Kelly, which is possibly Kelly. the only name that is more like mid-19th century Boston than Jane Toppin. For most of her life, she went by Nora for throughout her early life. Toppin's mother, Bridget, again, very Irish name. Um, Bridget died of tuberculosis when Toppin was a very young child, leaving her to be raised by her abusive, mentally ill, alcoholic father. And again, we say this in numerous historical episodes, but he was considered abusive and alcoholic by the standards of the day. And if you're considered an abusive alcoholic in 1854, you are fucking up. (laughs) Yeah, they drank moonshine for breakfast. Yeah, yeah. They was... had two pints during their break at work. <laughs> Teachers hit you at school, so if they thought that you were a shitty parent, like, you were fucking up. But, I mean, he kind of lived up to it. The man, her father, Peter Kelly, was reportedly widely known as Peter the Crack throughout town, as in Crackpot. Uh, we, are, mm. we are decades away from the crack epidemic of the 1980s. But he was known as Peter the Crack and was reportedly said to have sewn his own eyelid shut later in life while working as a tailor. So that's... Oh, delightful. Yeah, no, that's not great. It's not great. The very height of mental health. Yeah, no, it's... I was like, how mentally ill does the guy have to be to be known as Peter the Crack in the 1850s? And no, that would do it. I, I get it. Yeah, no, that, questions that's answered. 100%. Asked and answered. Agreed. Yep. Confirmed. 
Um, I don't know what diagnosis that gets you, but I don't think you need one at that point. No, no, I don't. I don't think we worry about that. I think we have bigger. What problems. you write down on the chart? Sewed eyelids together. Done. <laughs> Done. Done. We don't need to explore that further. We're actually good. <laughs> <laughs> it's something. You got something at that point. Um, mm. But when Toppin was just six years old, her father took her and her older eight-year-old sister Delia to the Boston Female Asylum, which was an orphanage for the care of orphaned and indigent female children. Um, she would never see her father again. So, just dropped her off at the old orphanage. You would orphanage. never see her either. Oh, no, because of the eyelids thing. <laughs> no, Jessica, no. Oh. I don't know why I bother. <laughs> yes. But also because she never was in his presence ever again. But yes, he sewed his eyes shut. You're really proud of that one. I can feel it. <laughs> I'm experiencing whimsy. <laughs> what is this feeling? But yeah, her records from the Boston Female Asylum said that she and her sister had been rescued from, quote, a very miserable home. I don't think that their situation changed a whole heck of a lot at the Boston Female Asylum. Uh, Delia, who was at the orphanage with her, would end up as a prostitute. And an older sister, Nellie, who had not been abandoned at the orphanage, would end up being committed to an insane asylum. So, family's not doing great. Initially, it seemed like Toppin was actually the sister who was going to make it. At the age of eight, she became an indentured servant to a widow named Anne Toppin who lived in nearby Lowell, Massachusetts. I'm doing way better than my siblings. I'm an indentured servant. I'm an indentured servant. Uh, this is what foster care was in the 1800s, kids. We've actually done a full episode on, like, early foster care in the United States. So if you're interested in the topic of how badly we abused foster children in the 1800s, go check that out. Um, yeah, less a, less a new <laughs> member of the family, more a dog that you can make do do housework. <laughs> that, was, that was a common model in both the US and Canada, is that, like, that was... Children would become indentured servants in other households. Like, that was... A, an early form of foster care. She was adopted into the family of a widow and her daughter Elizabeth, who was slightly older than Anne. It's, it's not nice. But yeah, it, it was a pretty common thing for, for orphaned or indigent children, which is just children whose families can't take care of them anymore due to poverty. Um, you would end up in a good Christian home. You would be indentured as a domestic servant, and the idea was that you would sort of like learn a trade in order to support yourself, which would be, I guess, indentured servitude. Um, and this is actually where her name gets changed. So um, the Toppin family invented a new backstory for her to pass her off as an Italian girl whose family was lost at sea um, in oh. order to avoid the shame of having an Irish in the house. Um, oh! Yes. Jane was what is now known as a, and I think was known at the time, as a black Irish, Toppin which does not mean that she was black. Um, it means that she was dark-haired and darker-complexioned. <laughs> it's a thing. The term Black Irish is a thing. Yeah, um, yeah it is. Yes, it it is. is, and it refers to Irish people who don't have the typical pale complexion and red or blonde hair. It is Irish people who are dark-eyed, dark-complexioned, dark-haired. There's a whole history to them and where they come from. But uh, they were like, fuck it, you're Italian now, and your parents are dead. Man. And we're Racism just gonna go with that. Layers. There is layers. Yeah, there is layers. So they went with I Italian sea orphan was the <laughs> was the story to beat. Yeah. 
So yeah, to to further disguise her ethnicity, they changed her name from Honora Kelly, which is about as Irish as it gets, to Jane Toppin, which doesn't sound very fucking Italian to me, but what do I know? Yeah. That doesn't sound super Italian at all. They were not trying. That is the name equivalent of a Yorkshire pudding. I have no idea why they thought that would pass as Italian, but whatever. Might as well just call you Spotted Dick. It's not a great disguise, but... That's what they did. Um, Jane was described as, quote, brilliant and terrible by those who knew her as a child, and she apparently did well in school. Um, She was also reportedly a little snitch and a vicious gossip in school, and she would go out of her way to frame other students for things that she herself had done, which, as you can imagine, made her pretty intensely unpopular. Yeah, she was just a little psychopath from a young age. Um, She was also reportedly a compulsive liar from an early age and would tell strangely grandiose lies, telling others that her brother was personally decorated by President Abraham Lincoln at Gettysburg and that her sister married into... No, she does not. So it's a real whopper. (laughs) She also claimed that her sister married into English nobility, which no, she did not. One was in an insane asylum and one is a prostitute. In Boston. I don't know where the other one went, but not to marry... the details a little bit. Yeah, not to marry English nobility. It's also really not really sticking to her story of being an Italian sea orphan. But what do I know? Come on, get with the story. Keep the details straight. (laughs) This is actually a pretty common trait in people who who grow up to be serial killers. This is not to say that all compulsive liars grow up to be serial killers, but a lot of serial killers have a history of compulsive lying. And it's lying about things that are either easily fact-checkable or just don't matter. Pointless? Yeah. Pointless lies. So so, so being a... What, what, what's his name? For some reason, all I can pop into my head is George Soros. But I mean the guy, congressman, who lies all the time. Oh my god, the one who has... Santos. 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 Yes. The, the one that claimed to have been robbed on Fifth Avenue and that there was a murder attempt on his life and that he had multiple employees that were in the Pulse nightclub shooting. Yeah, that's starting to feel like more performance art than being an elected official. I don't quite know what's going on with that. <laughs> it's just It's just when you start lying and there's no real pragmatic purpose to it. Like, it doesn't even make sense how much you're lying. And, like, it's lies that people will catch you in very easily. Like, they're they're not plausible. And the consequences of lying are going to be greater than anything you could hope to gain. And that is, man, that is mom died in 9-11. Oof, that one is fact-checkable. That list is quite public. Yeah, she died several years later. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, so at age 18, Jane Toppin graduated from high school and the Toppin family freed her from indenture. How kind of them. Uh, Oh, that's nice. They also gave her 50 bucks, which is actually a pretty decent chunk of change at the time. I don't think it's worth several years of indentured servitude, but you know. No, I don't think so either. I don't think it's worth being an indentured servant as an eight-year-old, but you know, there you have it. Um, Despite having been granted her freedom, Jane stayed on with the family as a live-in servant. After a little while, Anne Toppin died, the widow who had originally taken her in, and daughter Elizabeth took over the home and kept Jane on as a servant. That whole, like, sister-servant interpersonal dynamic feels pretty weird, but apparently Elizabeth was much kinder to Jane than her mother had been. And this this whole arrangement was, the idea of having an eight-year-old indentured servant was not unusual at the time. You could just sort of have an Irish slave child that 
just belonged to you, but it was unusual that they kept her as an indentured servant for so long. A lot of these families did eventually adopt the children that they took in indenture or would free them from indenture earlier than that. Like, it was unusual to just sort of, like, keep the child on as a domestic servant. Most of them sort of melded into the family at some point. Or didn't. Or <laughs> struck it on their yeah. own at, like, 14. It was Not unusual. Like Not limbo situation. It's weird to, like, inherit... To grow up as somebody's sister and then just sort of, like, get inherited, like, the furniture when your mother dies as a servant. Like, the whole thing is very strange. They lived like that for a while. Like, into into Jane's 30s. Things only kind of shifted between them. They kind of got on as, like, sister slash boss and servant. Um, until Elizabeth married a local church deacon named Oramel Brigham. How's that for an 18th, 19th century name? Oramel Brigham. And she moved Oramel into the home. Afterwards, Jane moved out of the home and began pursuing a new career. And there's not really any reliable records on sort of like what the rift was or why this triggered her to move out, but it did. Um, so in 1885, at the age of 31, Toppin began training to become a nurse at Cambridge Hospital. In contrast to how she had presented herself at school, she was now friendly, bubbly, and outgoing, which was a big personality departure for her, and she was subsequently given the nickname Jolly Jane. Oh! It's fun. It's a complete personality shift when you're 31. Yeah, she's about to kill a lot of people. A lot of people. <laughs> oh man, I want to kill people? Better stop being such a huge bitch. <laughs> kind of. I mean... Yeah. I mean, if that's what motivates you. She couldn't quite make the shift entirely, though. She was still known to be an incorrigible gossip, and she continued to be a compulsive liar. That's a really hard habit to kick. She was also suspected of being a kleptomaniac and compulsively stole small items. Or small items had a tendency to disappear when she was around. Many of the sources I looked at said that she was well-liked by doctors who viewed her as an eager and enthusiastic nurse, but she wasn't as well-liked by her nursing colleagues. You know, the people with the most passing, you know, shallow relationship with you think you're great. But the people who actually spend time with you think you're a bitch? Mmm, not a good sign. Well, she was very good at kind of sucking up to authority. It's how she got away with what she did for so long. Ah, the classic path of a schoolyard bully. <laughs> While in nursing school, she apparently started at least one rumor about a nursing school colleague she disliked that may have led to the girl being expelled from nursing school, so that's pretty intense. She was close with many of her patients, but she was known to have a soft spot for her favorite patients, who always tended to be the oldest and the sickest. And she started killing them before she was even out of nursing school. Bold. Oh yeah. While still in her nursing residency, and again, like, nursing school in the 1800s did not work the way that nursing school does today. It was sort of a two-year residency at a hospital. Um, rather than going through a university. It was really more of a trade. But while still in her nursing residency, she began to experiment with her patients' drug regimens, giving different amounts of drugs just to see what the effects would be. She would falsify her patients' charts and medical records in order to keep her favorite patients hospitalized for longer so that she could continue experimenting on them. She, she enjoyed watching the patient suffer from the effects of the drugs, and the first time she killed a patient with an overdose of morphine, she reported feeling ecstasy at watching them die. So this, this creepy girl. This is, this is a girl who in modern times microwaves her hamster. Like, this is not good. 
she very quickly learned to give patients a mixture of morphine and the anticholinergic atropine. The combination of the two drugs would give patients convulsions and would ultimately lead to unconsciousness or death. As kind of a fun side effect, um, and the reason she got away with as many things as she did, morphine causes the pupils of the eye to contract, but atropine causes them to expand, and mixing them cancels out the effect on pupil size. In the late 1800s, this made the poisoning very hard for doctors to detect, because that's very much what they were looking for, was an impact on pupil size. You didn't have Mm -hmm. as many options for poison back then. Um, She spent a lot of time alone with her patients, and later admitted that she would climb into bed with her patients while they were unconscious or convulsing. Which oh, is, uh, don't do that. Yeah, it's weird. You, you made Stop. it weird. You made this murder of an old lady weird. It was already fucked up, and now you made it weird. You made it real fucked up. So, one patient, recovering from surgery in 1887, remembered blacking out after Jane came into her room and gave her a dose of a bitter medicine. She came to to find Jane in bed with her, kissing her all over the face. The patient... Uh. Yeah, it's not good. Mm. Jane had some issues. This patient actually survived, though, and she decided that she had dreamed this episode until, spoiler alert, she learned of Jane's arrest many years later. But she just thought Uh. this was like, wow, what a weird hallucination my brain kicked in. Uh, I mean, I don't blame her. That's less weird. Right? Do you know how weird you would feel finding out years later that your nurse was just into that shit and it absolutely happened? (laughs) Cool. That'd be uncomfortable. Oh, I wasn't hallucinating. I was nearly murdered. Mm. By Jane's own estimation, she killed around a dozen patients during her time in nursing school. This already puts her on lists of some of the most prolific serial killers in the United States. You could absolutely not get away with this if people were using modern record-keeping practices. Absolutely not. No. Like, by the time we're done, this girl has lapped Ted Bundy. Like, these... But yeah, figuring out who exactly Jane killed was an extreme challenge, even in her day. She lived decades before the discovery of penicillin, in an age where people died from things like, I don't know, going outside and clipping your nails wrong. Like, having people die on you was just a lot more common in the 1800s than it is today, and suspicious deaths- Infected paper cut. Yeah, you're done. Uh, you're done. You're done here. You've clipped an ingrown toenail wrong. It's infected. You're done here. You're gone. You're out. So it was. It was even harder to tell who died under Jane's care because fuck it. I don't know. It's the 1800s. It sucks. We all shit in buckets. And who died because she killed them? That's that's hard to untangle today. So back then, it's impossible. Her victim tallies were sort of calculated with a combination of like records and her own admissions but her victims will never be fully identified or counted hospital administration at the cambridge hospital were apparently troubled by jane's fascination with autopsies which is admittedly troubling i don't know about that about that i think that's a normal a perfectly normal thing for a growing girl in her 30s (laughs) just some recreational autopsies but you know despite being really into autopsies She successfully completed her nurse training, and she got a job at Massachusetts General Hospital in 1889, which was quite a prestigious place to work. Like, she was doing well. The problem was that she resumed her experimentations and murders of patients pretty much immediately. Massachusetts General ran a much tighter ship than Cambridge had, and her falsified medical charts were noticed. But instead of, like, punishing her for it, they were chalked up to just incompetence and her being a bit of a keener. 
the <laughs> we were like, I don't know, maybe she's, she's so keen she sucks. Check faking medical charts. So keen. Well, because she was over reporting how sick her patients were. Like the point the point of oh, falsifying. They thought these... she was over it. Yeah. They thought that she was just um really thorough she just wanted to make sure that they were really well before they were released from the hospital when actually she's like actually no i want to continue to play god stay in the bed gladys um i'm exaggerating how sick this old lady is because i want to fucking kill her yeah exactly that was not the first thing that they suspected that is not immediately where the hospital went like oh i bet she's just like flicking the bean to thoughts of killing this old lady that's not where they went that wasn't the first bet she's not giving her you know strychnine and trying to make out no, somehow that wasn't the first thing they suspected. They suspected that she just kind of sucked at her job and was a little bit too worried about the patients. She was also suspected of a number of petty thefts around the hospital, which put her on thin ice with her employers. When she left her ward without permission in 1890, she was fired. She then returned to Cambridge Hospital for a while, but was fired shortly afterwards for her reckless dispensing of opioids. Oh, and again, historical context. Do you know how reckless you need to be with opioids to get in trouble for that in the year eighteen? Pretty reckless. Yeah, you can get pretty amphetamines re- because you feel fat. Like this is not a time when we are careful with these drugs. We need <laughs> to put morphine in children's cough syrup. Do you know how glad handy you have to be with the morphine before people get worried? And this second firing was a problem for her because although she'd completed nursing school, she'd been fired from both of her hospital jobs before she'd been able to obtain her nursing license, and she had been reported to the licensure board for her carelessness with medication, which means she wasn't able to get the license. And without her license, she was not eligible to work at another hospital. But (laughs) don't let that stop you. Uh, This was not the end of her nursing career. She had absolutely no trouble finding further employment as a nurse. Just yanking herself up by the bootstraps. She was well-liked by the patients that, I guess, she didn't kill. And uh, she was well-liked by several sure, of she pays, pays attention to them. She's a very attentive nurse. Um, so many people recommended her as a private nurse for wealthy individuals. Oh, good. More privacy. Yes. Less oversight. Less oversight. We love that. And if anything, she was actually better off working as a private nurse. She was taking home $25 a week working as a private nurse, which is a healthy wage at the time. Yeah, I mean, it's half what it took her her to earn from when she was eight. (laughs) From eight to 18, that that was half her life's wages. She's moving up in the world. Yeah, the typical wage for a woman at that time and place was $5 a week. So she's making quintuple what an average woman is at the time. Even the constant complaints of kleptomania and petty theft did not stand in the way of her flourishing private nursing career. It's it's real hard to find a nurse, guys. And and then all the while, she is continuing to kill her patients and steal their belongings. One family in 1895 complained to the doctor who'd recommended her that they suspected her of stealing their deceased grandmother's clothes after she died. The doctor vigorously oh. defended her, calling her one of the finest women and best nurses he knew. She had absolutely killed the old woman. And the the wild thing is the family didn't even suspect her of killing the grandmother. They were just upset about the stolen clothes. But she murdered that old lady. <laughs> oh, no, no doubt she did. She absolutely did. This, is, this has been a thing for a while, is that angels of death really have stereotypes on their side. Who suspects, you know, if a little old lady who's at the end of her life dies in the care of her home care nurse... 
you you don't suspect the nurse killed her. Like that's just such a, a far gone conclusion. Yeah, you're paying her to be there when the woman dies. Yeah, that's so her whole why job. Why would you be suspicious when she's there when the woman dies? Right, that's what you're paying her for. Like nobody's nobody's under any illusion that grandma's gonna get back to tap dancing. Like you're there to you're there to provide end of life care in many of these cases. Um, or 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 care for temporary illnesses, but it's the 1800s. Anything can happen. Well, and she let enough of her patients live that people just kind of chalked it up to like, well, you work with really sick old people. Of course they're going to die. Unfortunately, though, for Jane and everyone around her, this was a point in her life when she really just started killing people in earnest and she was no longer doing it on the job. She started She started taking work home with her. She was killing people off and on the job. Jane had apparently grown quite close with her elderly landlord, Israel Dunham, because everybody in this fucking story has a name, like a storybook character. Boy, do they. Yeah. And she was also close to his wife, whose actual name was Lovely Dunham. Oh, yeah. lovely. She sounds like a cartoon rabbit in a Beatrice lovely Potter novel. Lovely Dunham. Lovely Dunham. Um, anyway, uh, Jane murdered both of them, um, <laughs> regardless of how great their names were. She poisoned 83-year-old Israel first, and he died on May 26th of 1895. Two years later, she poisoned 87-year-old Lovely Dunham, who died September 19th, 1897. Just spacing him out so she can enjoy the grief cycle. Yeah, she never really gave much of a motive for these killings, other than to say that the Dunhams had gotten, quote, feeble and fussy. And this is another important thing to know about Jane, is that, like, Despite all of her quote-unquote favorite patients being elderly, and despite admitting that she got a sexual thrill out of killing the elderly, she didn't like elderly people very much. She just pretended to so she could lull them into a false sense of security. In nursing school, colleagues reported they'd heard her say that she did not see any point in keeping the elderly alive. She viewed them as a burden. Oh, and she, yeah, she just did not see the point in providing the medical care or keeping them alive. She thought that they were better off just being put out of their misery. She was, uh, she had some thoughts on that subject. Um, Interesting. So she, That's she, the sort of thing I'd be concerned with a colleague saying. Yeah, it's probably not a thing that somebody should say and then still become a nurse. That doesn't seem like an attitude no. that is safe for that particular career. It's like um, you're a teacher in the, the fucking homeroom. Fucking... <laughs> right, and you're just like, I think I should be allowed to back my Honda Civic over a child. Be like, you know what? No, you don't become a teacher. Not you. No, no not you're, you. You're excused. Get out. <laughs> <laughs> Although she'd moved out of Elizabeth's household before starting her nursing career, Jane did maintain a close relationship with Elizabeth, um, who she did view as her foster sister. Elizabeth often invited Jane to come and stay at the family home for visits, and Jane would take her up on those invitations from time to time. So even though she moved out, like, they were not estranged. Jane was in the habit of renting a cottage on Buzzards Bay near Cape Cod every summer, and she invited Elizabeth there to join her in the summer of 1899, as Elizabeth had been struggling with depression. Elizabeth was apparently delighted to be invited to this cottage by her beloved foster sister slash employee, and she accepted. So, in late August of 1899, Jane and Elizabeth had a picnic on the beach together. One of the things that Jane packed for the picnic was mineral water that she had laced with strychnine, which she of gave course. to her foster sister. Yeah! <laughs> you know, when I said strychnine earlier, I, don't, I didn't realize I was being prophetic. 
On the nose. You know your old-timey poisons. Look at you. I do. (laughs) (laughs) It's troubling that that knowledge is just living front and center. Just prime real estate in your brain, right near the top. I know it better than most of my family's birth dates. Strumine! (laughs) Jessica's just like, listen, in case I ever go through a time machine and need to poison somebody, I'm ready. That's a skill. That's a scenario I need to prepare for. I'm down. I'm ready. I'm so prepared. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's what she used. Um, Jane sent a telegram to Elizabeth's husband, Oramil, telling... Oramil? Oramil? I don't know. Oramil. Telling him that she had taken seriously ill. She was in a coma by the time he arrived at her bedside, and doctors chalked up her condition to an apoplectic stroke. So Elizabeth died from the poison water. Jane would later state that, quote, I held her in my arms and watched with delight as she gasped her life out. So, you know. Weird. Harsh. Weird thing to do to your ex-boss slash sister. Yeah, so that's the thing. Although Elizabeth was very fond of Jane, it turns out that Jane did not share the same feelings. Jane, I mean, and I'm kind of, I see, I see where Jane is coming from. Not with the murder, not with the dozens of elderly people or sister she that she took killed. It too far. But I get where she's coming from. She felt a great deal of resentment toward her foster sister for the circumstances of their upbringing. Most families that took children in from orphanages would ultimately adopt them and blend them into the family, but Jane remained a servant in the shadow of the quote-unquote real Toppin sister, Elizabeth. Well, I mean, who can blame them? She's a dirty Italian. (laughs) Well, that's the thing, is that she was given the family's name, but she was never allowed to be a full member of the family. There was, even though her and Elizabeth were the Toppin sisters, there was always this overhanging idea that... Yeah, Elizabeth was the real sister, and she was just the servant. Of course, as much as that sucks, none of it was Elizabeth's fault, because she was also a child at the time that Jane came into her home. She was like nine. What did you want her to do about the situation? But nonetheless, Jane killed people for way less than that, so she killed her sister. After she was arrested, Jane would admit that she got a sexual thrill from killing people, but also from bringing people close to the edge of death and back. She was really into that part of the whole process. She liked being in control of um, bringing people as close to death as she could and then kind of rallying them. Yes. Edging. It's the worst possible term for it. <laughs> it's it's so bad. Am I wrong, Janelle? Oh. Am I wrong? Oh, I mean, you're not, but just... Necro-edging. Oh, no, no, that's worse. That's worse. <laughs> nope, nope, I regret the thousands of Garanto years of linguistics. necro-edging. Yeah, I regret the thousands of years of linguistics that allowed you to construct that sentence. I regret... <laughs> The structures of the human brain that let you create novel words for stimuli based on existing words that you know. Nope, I regret all of it. All of it was a mistake. We should communicate only in grunts. (laughs) I'd still find out a way to grunt the concept, Janelle. I will not be restrained. Necro-edging. Great. That's That's a concept you've birthed into the universe and you are responsible for it. I'm basically Shakespeare. Oh, God, no. But, um, yes, she was in the habit of, as Jessica would say, necro-edging. And she was in the habit of getting into bed with the people she drugged or killed so that she could hold them and caress them as they died or as they recovered. 
She got a lot of enjoyment seeing the life slip out of people's eyes, which is some spooky shit. Um, and she also committed several poisonings that appear to have been for straightforward personal or financial gain. So, in 1899, year she killed her sister, it's a busy year, a 70-year-old woman named Mary McNear was visiting Cambridge Hospital, um, visiting Cambridge, the town right outside of Boston, when she suddenly took ill. The doctor she spoke to recommended that she hire Toppin as a private nurse to take care of her, calling Toppin one of his best nurses. It must be great being this, the kind of serial killer where you can get recommendations. Right? Like, you have references. People just keep giving you victims, and then you get paid for it, and you get an excellent review. Like, this is just serial killing on easy mode. Unfortunately for Mary McNear, uh, Jane killed her with poison on December 28th, 1899. Just a few weeks later, she set her sights on her next victim, which was her friend Sarah Elmira Connors, who went by the name Myra. The problem with private nursing was that although it paid well, it really lacked stability. She had to be hired yeah, by- I mean, e- especially if your patients are dying all the time. That's kind of the problem, too. I, you're, it's your own fault if your career is unstable because you keep killing your clients. That's usually not part of the gig. That's not how you maintain no. stable freelance employment. Um, At best, questionable. So she had to be hired by each individual family. There wasn't like a nursing agency that she worked for. It was always just a one-to-one thing. And when one job ended, again, maybe prematurely because she killed the person, she really couldn't be sure how long it was going to take her to get another job. Self-employed? (laughs) Self-unemployed? You have no one to blame but yourself if you can't find work because you killed it. Um, Her friend Myra, on the other hand, had a sweet gig working as the matron of St. John's Theological School. Her position not only included a regular salary, but also came with an apartment and the services of a maidservant. That is never in job contracts anymore. Snazzy. When was the last time you saw a maidservant listed as a benefit? Never. I'm just excited that I get free gummy worms. (laughs) Right? I was like, I get granola bars and I'm into that. Maidservant. (laughs) Imagine. Jeez. (laughs) <laughs> I thought I was spoiled. <laughs> so what? Let me guess. She was jealous? Oh yeah. Big time jealous. Janie jealous? Mm. And uh, there's not a lot of matron jobs to go around. Um, it was also like a much nicer job. She's wiping bums and dealing with physical work. This lady is like has functionally an office job. Um, So, you know, she did naturally the only thing she was ever going to do. She killed her friend with poison in order to take her job. Hmm. As one does. As one does, naturally. That's, you know, career I mean, progression. The only reason why Janelle's still alive is because I don't actually want to y- run a chaotic youth shelter in Halifax. No, you probably do not. <laughs> I was like... <laughs> You're safe, Janelle. No one wants your job. <laughs> I mean, if you don't want to get... Definitely not enough to kill you for it. If you don't enjoy being overstimulated, I'm guessing that, like, working in a residential facility with dozens of children is probably not the way to go. And she was quite bold in the way she went about getting Myra's job. So at Myra's funeral, at this mm. woman's funeral, the funeral of a woman she killed, Jane approached Myra's boss and let it slip how tragic it was that Myra had died right before she had planned on taking a sabbatical, which was obviously news to him. But who are you to argue with a woman's friend at her funeral? And, you know, oh, by the way, she had been intending to recommend Jane to fill in for her while she was away on her sabbatical. Had she now, Jane? You know, just, 
just some thoughts to mull over there. Uh, The school then offered Jane the job, which she made a big show of considering and hemming and hawing about before she ultimately accepted the job, quote, for Myra's sake. Uh, There was the one thing she hadn't counted on in this whole scheme, though, which is that she was completely dog shit at the job. She was terrible at it. She had absolutely- I know you've said a lot of things so far, Janelle, but that just right there, that last minute, I hate this woman. Yeah, she's not great. She's it's pretty she's, conniving. She's got a D minus personality. P- pretty evil. Stealing stealing your friend's job at her funeral, uh, which also means stealing her apartment and her maid servant. It's cold. It's cold. Yeah, you're not even good at it. Yeah, uh, no, she was not good at it. She had absolutely no head for finances, and she had no experience in management, and she bungled things badly enough that she was asked to resign within a year of taking the position. Yeah, some people have standards. Yeah, and it turns out if you've been a private nurse who specializes in killing people, maybe you actually can't oversee a gigantic budget for a theological college. Those are not comparable skill sets. Those <laughs> Not don't, transferable. Not a transferable skill. Jane's career issues took a toll on her own finances, specifically her payments for the cottage she rented on Buzzards Bay. The cottage was owned by a couple named Alden and Maddie Davis, who had rented the property to Jane every summer beginning in 1896. In 1899, after her sister died, the Davises had forgone asking for that summer's rent in light of the circumstances. What a humane time to be alive. You have a death in the family, so you just don't pay rent that year. What a kinder, gentler world, except for all of the death and murder and lack of technology. In the year 1900, Jane asked for an extension on the rent as she did not have enough money at the time to cover it. When she visited the cottage anyway that summer without making her rent payment, Maddie Davis decided to go to Jane's home in Boston in the summer of 1901 to discuss the rent issue in person. Since Jane had killed her previous landlords, Jane was now boarding at the home of a couple named Melvin and Eliza Beadle. She did not end up killing Melvin and Eliza, but she did poison them on at least one occasion to make them think that they had food poisoning. Just a little light poisoning. Just among yeah, friends. Among friends. You know, just just making you think that you undercook the sausages. Just as, you know, pranks. Jokes. Keep you on your toes. Jane offered Maddie Davis a glass of water when she arrived at the Beetle home, but of course, unbeknownst to Maddie, the water was poisoned with morphine. Maddie fell ill after drinking the water, and the Beatles immediately offered to let her rest in the spare bedroom until she'd recovered. Get her out of there! You're in a horror movie. <laughs> oh yeah, no, no. It was the worst possible idea. But at the time, they thought they were doing the right thing. Run! Um, while she was in bed in the spare bedroom, Jane slipped in and gave Maddie another injection of morphine, uh, putting her in a coma. This would make a good horror movie. This would be an excellent horror movie. The fact that this woman is not more famous is uh, is kind of remarkable because she, she killed a lot of people. Hollywood, you're missing out. Real flimsy reasons. When the doctor arrived at the home of the Beatles, Jane told the doctor that Maddie was diabetic, which was true, and that she had lapsed into a coma after eating a piece of cake, which was not true. The cake did it. And also, still a medical emergency. Um, yeah, the doctor figured that that sounded pretty reasonable. Um, presumably Maddie was a type 2 diabetic, because if you were a type 1 diabetic at this juncture in history, you simply did not live to adulthood. And these, this couple was older, and we know that because, uh, spoiler alert, Maddie dies. Um, 
Since there was already a nurse on site to care for Maddie, the doctor decided that she was getting all of the treatment she needed, and he left. <laughs> He's like, no, Bad you're instincts. dead. This, this woman will take care of you. And I mean, in a sense, she did. Look, a medical professional. <laughs> Jane let... <laughs> I, like, I like the horror sound effects. Those are good. Thank you. Jane let Maddie linger for about a week and would vary the doses of morphine so that she was in and out of consciousness. She then finished Maddie off with a large dose of morphine at the end. As a nurse, Jane accompanied Maddie's body to her hometown of Catamount, Massachusetts, and stayed with the family through the burial. So the Davis family, which was daughters Minnie and Genevieve and their widower father, Alden, were a tight-knit bunch and they really rallied together as a family after the death of their mother. At Maddie's funeral, they asked Jane if she would stay on with them to care for their elderly father, Eldon, in his time of grief. This woman literally cannot murder her way out of a job. People just keep hiring her. I mean, she's treats. I mean, she's such a go-getter. She treats every funeral as a networking opportunity. She's this. Nobody has been more employed at funerals that's not a mortician. This this Zero. woman, <laughs> like. She's basically walking around gravesites handing out her business card. And people are like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> this is appropriate. This isn't weird. No. So she was asked to stay on in the Davis home. And it would end up being kind of the beginning of the end for both the family and for Jane. So while staying at the Davis family home, Jane apparently amused herself by starting several fires around the property. Which, oh, delightful. Yeah. She's, she's kind of hitting all that dark triad characteristics the characteristics of people who are likely to engage in antisocial behavior we've got we've got fires starting now she would blame all of these fires on a fictional stranger that she claimed to have seen skulking around the property it's not me the new person in the household suddenly starting fires it's definitely the weird man out there that only i can see once she got bored of arson however she went back to her favorite pastime which was murdering people for no reason so as a rule, Jane avoided poisoning people with heavy metals because even at the turn of the 20th century, heavy metal poisoning was quite easy to detect. That shit shows up. That shit shows up. There's some telltale signs. But this time, she saw an opportunity to switch up her usual murder style. Just freestyling it a little bit. Just a little creative. Yeah, get, get a little creative. A little twist. You know, get a vibe going. Daughter Genevieve was very clearly overwhelmed by her mother's death, and she really struggled to recover from it. Sensing an opportunity, Jane confided in Minnie that she'd seen Genevieve out in the family shed inspecting a tin of arsenic, which was a lie. The mm. clear implication here that Jane would have understood was that Genevieve was contemplating suicide. Minnie and Jane decided that they would watch Genevieve closely in case she did something to harm herself. I also love this is an era in history where people just casually have arsenic in the garage. That's just... Oh, delightful. We just have to have that on hand at all times. It's useful. There's rats. You can't just get a cat to do it. <laughs> and then you have to feed the little beast. But yeah, with her cover story established, Jane proceeded to kill Genevieve with arsenic. And at the time, suicide was incredibly stigmatized, and Jane knew that there'd be very little investigation into her death. So unlike today, where suicides often lead to inquests, at the time, to avoid further embarrassment to the family after this very, you know, something that they considered very shameful had happened, they really wouldn't investigate suicides. They would want to hush it up as quickly as possible. 
Um, and they would often, even if it was a known suicide, not list the cause of death as suicide on the paperwork out of deference to the family. So sure enough, Genevieve's cause of death was officially listed as heart disease. Just to, you know, just add some shame and stigma onto that pile that we keep. We still do that. Yeah, we that still do that. That was one of the that. issues with the, n- the number of opioid deaths that were listed as accidental poisonings. High, yeah. actually. Really high. This is also kind of the problem with, like, this post-COVID wave of paranoia. That anytime you see a headline that says, like, died suddenly, people are like, of the vaccine they got a year and a half ago. No, died suddenly is often a euphemism for that they killed themselves. Um, yeah. It's often it's often it done. It frequently means suicide. Suicide or an accidental overdose or a, a potential overdose that we don't know whether it was intentional or not. Um, but yeah, it's often kind of a euphemism to, not always, not always, but it's often used sort of to spare the family from from talking about the circumstances two weeks after killing the daughter with arsenic jane killed father eldon with an overdose of morphine and again true early 1900s fashion this was chalked up to death from a broken heart that's what his cause of death was listed as apparently jane saw no need to stop while she was having fun because just four days later she killed minnie with an overdose of morphine jeez yeah Calm down. And, you know, this is obviously a detail that, like, if you are squeamish, I don't know, hum real loud for the next couple seconds. But apparently the first dose of morphine left Minnie unable to swallow the final lethal dose. So Jane was forced to finish her off by administering a morphine enema, which is bleak. Oh. That's the worst possible murder weapon. That, I don't, I don't care. That's, that's bad. That's gross. Morphine to the butthole. Emotionally. Not dignified. <laughs> give people their dignity. But do you Come gotta? On. Come on. Do you ha- is this necessary? Just, just give her an injection between the toes. Be a- Be kind. Be a dear. This time, Jane had flown a little too close to the sun by murdering so many healthy members of the same family back to back. The reason why you gave the first daughter, you know, that you planted it, like, carefully, like, arranged it so it looked like a suicide... Was because she's a healthy woman. An entire family dying back to back to back drew press attention, who would write stories about the quote unfortunate Davis family. Again, people, the the popular press didn't didn't suspect that there was murder, but it drew the suspicions of Minnie's father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs. So Gibbs was quite fond of Jane, but decided that too many suspicious things had happened over the course of the month that she stayed with the Davis family. And he wanted the matter investigated. And thank goodness somebody realized, like, hey, this strange woman we knew nothing about came to stay for a month and literally everyone died. Maybe there's something to that. A doctor who had examined Alden the day before his death agreed that there was something suspicious about his passing and got together with Gibbs to press the issue. Gibbs happened to be a family friend of Leonard Wood, a former military surgeon and general who had recently been appointed to the governor of Cuba. Wood happened to be vacationing in Cape Cod at the time that all this was unfolding, and with his medical training and political situation, Wood was able to open an investigation into the deaths of the Davis family. That is one that is one thing about like hunting primarily among rich families. Uh once they are suspicious, they can do something about it. They're gonna hunt you for sport. Like, <laughs> stick to killing elderly people that you can get away with. Don't kill young people for kicks and then expect that that's just going to go well. 
But yeah, after finishing off the Davis family, Jane, who was completely unaware that any kind of investigation had been opened, went to pay a visit to her foster sister's widow, the Reverend Oramal Brigham. Some sources speculate that Jane had been in love with her foster sister's husband for a while, and that her sister's murder may have partially been an attempt to get the sister out of the way so that Jane could have him all to herself. She tried just about everything to get Oromel's attention all to herself and win his affection. Naturally, she killed off his 77-year-old sister, Edna Bannister, and then poisoned Oromel. Because, you know... The other woman. Nothing gets his attention like killing his sister and then poisoning him. It's like pulling she, on pigtails. Right? Just means, you didn't notice me. means she likes you. She apparently did not kill Oromel, but she intentionally made him sick enough that she had to, quote, nurse him back to health. Like, this was all an attempt to show him, I can save you. Him. <laughs> she was like, I can fix him. I can do it. I broke him in the first place, but I can fix him. She also apparently made several advances on him in this time while he was recovering, hinting at wanting to marry him. When Orwell made it clear that he was not interested in marrying her, she proceeded to kill his housekeeper Florence Calkins in an attempt to take her job. Ah, the other other woman. The only way this woman knows how to make career advancement is just to kill people. Working your way up. <laughs> Klingon style. Orwell made it clear that he did not want her in his house either as a housewife or a housekeeper, so Jane subsequently took an overdose of morphine herself and landed herself in the hospital. Some sources record this as a possible suicide attempt, but again, Jane's been killing people with morphine for years. She's uniquely qualified to know how much morphine it takes to kill somebody exactly. So it's it's more than likely that she didn't actually want to die. She She would have known how much to take if that was what she really wanted to do. In a fun twist, Jane was being tailed by a detective at this point because, you know, she was suspected of murdering a family. And when she landed in the hospital, he actually faked an illness so he could be admitted to the hospital to continue tailing her, which is dedication <laughs> to the job. I feel like they don't let you do that now. It's frowned uh, upon. Back in the day. All right. Better time. I don't know. Uh, better. Make America great again. Oh, no. Oh, she's broken. Oh, no. <laughs> Uh-oh, we gotta we gotta push you down like old Yeller behind the shed. After being released from the hospital, Jane went to stay with a friend named Sarah Nichols in New Hampshire, and would almost certainly have killed her too had she not finally been arrested for her crimes within a few weeks of her arrival. I hate it when that happens. When you're about to kill, you know, your like nineteenth friend and they just they just don't let you. Yeah, how many friends do you have? I know, I was thinking the same thing. I was like, why do people keep befriending this woman? Right? I like to give my friends the benefit of the doubt, but if I had a friend who, like, literally everybody they encountered just died young and horrible, I'd Everyone be like, they stayed with just died immediately? Right, I'd be like, you know what? Maybe you don't come live at my apartment for a while. Maybe we don't do that. So she was arrested. Minnie's body had been exhumed as part of the investigation, and when poison was found in her body, the warrant was issued for Jane's arrest. The arrest of Jane Toppin started an absolute media circus. Newspapers began digging into her background and discovered a trail of su suspicious deaths in her wake, including the death of her foster sister. Reporters at the time were not held to the same journalistic standards that they are today, and you could print whatever garbage you want to. The newspapers pretty much unilaterally declared her to be guilty of a string of murders beyond any shadow of a doubt as far as they were concerned. It just so happens that they were right. For once. Uh, Jane was a little bit ahead of her time in that she was in the lifelong habit of having only coffee for breakfast. And newspapers jumped all over this unusual habit of hers, declaring this the breakfast of a psychopath and clear proof of insanity. I, I guess? Personally, I wouldn't have chalked it up to her breakfast. 
Yeah, I would have I would have focused more on the like dozens of people who died under mysterious circumstances in her care, but the the breakfast thing's a little weird. Ormel Brigham went to the papers to start a rumor that she was a morphine addict, which was untrue. And also kind of disappointing. You've got so much material to work with, dude, and you pick the one thing she's not guilty of. Yeah, she killed your wife, your sister, and your housekeeper. Can you focus? <laughs> Right? Like, she murdered people. You don't Funny. need to make shit up. You've got lots to work with. Yeah. You know the worst thing she could have possibly done? Murder! Which she did! Despite the fact that this woman was collecting corpses wherever she goes, they actually had a really hard time proving her guilt. The first stroke of bad luck was that the Davis family doctor passed away of natural causes, legit ones this time, she didn't poison him, um, before her arrest. She got to claim in her defense that the doctor had evidence of the family's health that could exonerate her, but of course she could no longer access this evidence because he had died. So, points for Jane. The prosecutors also fucked up the medical science in their haste to arrest her. Minnie's body contained traces of arsenic, which was the basis of Jane's arrest, but Jane had not poisoned Minnie with arsenic. It's just no. kind of in the air and up the ass. your whole life. There's just arsenic everywhere. Everybody's got traces of arsenic. It's like common household rat poison. In this case, though, the reason was that the undertaker who embalmed Minnie had embalmed her body with a fluid that contained arsenic, and that's what they detected when they tested her tissues. That threw an enormous wrench into the entire case. Um, so they were not off to a good start. It was ultimately a newspaper interview with Minnie's father-in-law, Captain Paul Gibbs, that moved the prosecution along. Why is this- is this just the most competent man in the entire area? Literally, he, like, single-handedly brought this woman down. He's the only one who's like, yeah, actually, I think it's incredibly weird that everybody who encounters this particular woman dies horribly. Uh, somebody should stop that. You've got the police, you got the prosecutor, here comes the father-in-law! <laughs> right? And even the press are just like, oh, people keep dying mysteriously in, like, in her company? Well, she- she drinks coffee, that's weird. That's evidence. <laughs> that's, uh... Case solved. Slap the cuffs on. Uh, like, no. they Nobody had any clue. Gibbs was told during this interview about the whole arsenic debacle, how many had been embalmed with arsenic and they had fucked it up. And when Gibbs was told about this, he insisted that Jane was too intelligent to have used a poison that was easy to detect and correctly guessed that Jane would have most likely used a mixture of atropine and morphine as he knew that the side effects canceled each other out and made the overdose difficult to detect. So this guy is Sherlock just like Holmes, Sherlock Holmesing the shit out of this. He's actually dead on. He even guesses the drugs. Captain Gibbs was also the first to point out that Jane owed the Davis family quite a bit of money, and that $500 had gone missing from Alden's possessions after his death. The prosecution had not known about those details. Oh, look! A motive! That's right! The Boston Herald also tracked down a biological cousin of Jane's, a woman named Jeanette Snow, who told the papers all about Jane's bleak childhood, her father's evident mental illness, and the fact that her sister had ended up in an insane asylum. And at the turn of the century, having a family member in the insane asylum was pretty much enough to make a case for your own mental illness as well. So initially, the state wanted to make a case for insanity rather than proceeding with a criminal trial for Jane. And the reason being that Jane was well-liked by numerous prominent and wealthy Boston families that she'd worked for as a private nurse, and many of them sent in letters for su of support for her after she was arrested. She had some, some powerful players on her side. They knew that a criminal prosecution would be difficult and would cause a huge uproar. 
But then further test results on Minnie's body came back and found that she had died from a combined overdose of morphine and atropine, something that only a trained medical professional would have been able to pull off. An examination of Janine's drug purchases, which apparently we're just checking for the first time now. Wow. Mid-trial? Yeah. (laughs) Right? They're just like, hmm, should we check and see how much of this shit she's actually ordering? And they're like, nah, that doesn't make any sense. But an examination of her drug purchases showed that she had more than enough of the drugs in her possession to pull off this murder, and the case moved forward. Jane was indicted for a criminal trial by a special grand jury in December of 1901. However, the case never made it to trial. Jane's lawyer intended to go for an insanity defense, and neither he nor the DA actually wanted to go through the long, arduous process of an insanity trial, which would involve a parade of expert witnesses and drag on for absolute ages. Contrary to what you've, like, seen on TV or heard in the news, an insanity defense is not an instant, like, plead insanity and then the case is over. It takes a very long time to decide whether or not somebody is mentally competent. That's a whole process. What they ended up doing is that both parties agreed that Jane would be examined by a panel of independent psychiatrists and they would go with whatever recommendation this panel concluded. So they basically were just like outsourced the shit out of it. Three prominent psychologists of the era were selected for the panel and they began meeting with Jane in March of 1902 to explore her mental state. All three doctors very quickly picked up on the fact that Jane was an obvious compulsive liar. She was not good at hiding this. In her meetings with these doctors, Jane calmly and emotionlessly confessed to the murder she'd been accused of, although at that point she did not go into her full criminal history. She explained to the police the sexual thrill she got from committing murder and told the doctors that her goal was to, quote, have killed more people, helpless people, than any other man or woman who has ever lived. And, uh, yeah, I mean, she she gave it a good run. Goals. Right? Always important to have goals. Shoot for the stars. Even if you miss, you'll land at the forensic hospital. So at the time, insanity defenses in Massachusetts were judged by something called the McNaughton Rule, which comes from an 1843 British criminal case. The McNaughton Rule is still used in about half of U.S. states and is still the basis of Canada's version for an insanity defense, although Canada has made some pretty significant reforms to the idea. So the crux of the McNaughton Rule is that in order to qualify for an insanity defense, a defendant needs to either have been completely incapable of knowing what they were doing at all, or they need to have been incapable of understanding that their actions were wrong. I could do a whole entire piece on insanity defenses, um, because that quote, not knowing it was wrong piece, is incredibly open to interpretation and doesn't actually mesh well with what we know of mental illness, but that is a whole thing, and we're not going to subject you to it tonight because this is already a very long two-point episode. But suffice it to say... It's, it's a bit of a controversial standard, and McNaughton himself, who was a person whose acquittal was the basis for this whole rule, actually would not have met that standard. Um, but Jane very clearly did not meet the standard of the McNaughton rule. She was completely aware of her crimes, she knew full well that they were wrong, and she just thought that the sexual thrill she got from doing them was worth it. That was, that's it. Yeah, basically in the end, psychiatrists were so incredibly grossed out by a woman calmly explaining (laughs) that she'd spent 16 years getting her sexual jollies, shooting up old people with morphine, and then spooning them until they died. That was just, like, such a weird thing to say to medical professionals uh, that they used... (laughs) 
<laughs> all three of them. And you know that that is one. There's a lot of like cultural dissonance with the past, but I think that's one that like would still hold. That's today. a universal. That's that is a that yeah that <laughs> Taylor's Ta- Ta- oldest time. That's a lot. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> yeah, she. They all three of them unilaterally declared that she was completely morally insane. And that she was unfit to stand trial with no hope of ever recovering. They were like, nope, you're fucked. You need, you need to go to the <laughs> Lock her to up. the night-night box. Like, absolutely not. You're fucked in the head. Put her away. Put her away. Uh, we don't need a trial. You're going... She's broken. Well, she's going to the hospital. They're like, you know what? There's just something... You just need some help. You Hospital, hospital forever. forever. <laughs> um, there was technically no need for a trial after this ruling was made. But one was held anyway as kind of a formality. Jane was apparently in good spirits throughout her trial and was laughing and chatting as she was sentenced to spend the rest of her life in a mental institution. At trial, it was revealed she had confessed to her attorney that she was actually responsible for at least 31 murders, although the number may have been much higher. I don't doubt it. She went through an entire family in a few weeks. But yeah, Jane was actually the first convicted serial killer in America. Although her fellow Bostonian H.H. Holmes had confessed to 27 murders just a few years earlier and is considered America's quote-unquote first serial killer, Holmes was ultimately convicted and executed for just a single murder. Jane Toppin, on the other hand, was convicted of multiple murders. Press at the time predicted that Jane Toppin would go down as one of the most notorious figures in American history and that she would be one of the world's most prolific poisoners. And it's very interesting to me that today, when interest in true crime has arguably never been higher, she's still quite an obscure figure. Jane lived out the remainder of her days in the Taunton State Hospital, which was a, quote, lunatic asylum, and she did not have a good time. Uh, Unlike the other patients there, she was fully lucid and in control of her faculties. And in her early days at Taunton, she was a model patient and a favorite amongst the staff. While staying there, however, the problem is that mental health, uh, mental health, problems can be contagious. After staying there for a while, her mental health decompensated quite significantly, and she ended up having manic episodes where she would suddenly revert to her birth name and rave about becoming a nun. So the prostitute was the only one that didn't end up in an insane asylum. Yeah, she's actually doing the best. You know, go girl. Uh, Jane would sometimes refuse all food, convinced that it had been poisoned, which is a fun irony. Newspapers delighted, reported on this development with delight, presenting it as a sort of karmic retribution for all of the murdering that she had done. And Jane passed away in a taunt, in Taunton Hospital in 1938 at the age of 83. That's weirdly recent. It's weirdly recent, and we'll never have a full accounting of all the people she killed, but it's likely that she's one of the more prolific serial killers in American history, claiming at least 31 victims. So, you know. Work smarter, not harder? That's a terrible motto for this. I don't know. There's no moral for this story. Sometimes people are just broken inside. And it means nothing. So, you know, there you go. Um, Don't hump people while they die. uh, Important life lesson. I'll keep that in mind. Our last kind of angel of death is something called a malignant hero. So perhaps the most interesting subtypes are these guys. These malignant hero killers don't necessarily intend to kill their victims. They intentionally sicken, injure, or endanger their victims so that they can be the one to rush in and heroically save or resuscitate the patient. You know what? I love sympathy and being the best. But if you're not actually Superman and you can't actually see through walls, the easiest way to rescue a lot of people is to put them in harm's way. 
Right? It's a uh, who knew? Life hack. As you can imagine, though, some of these malignant heroes would lose patience in the process, especially as they became more and more brazen over time. Some experts believe that this subgroup is actually a quote-unquote professional version of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. The OG Munchausen syndrome, which is called factitious disorder imposed on self sometimes, is a condition where you either fake or induce symptoms of illness in yourself in order to receive sympathy, attention, and prolonged medical treatment. Although some people with Munchausen syndrome do fundraise for their medical care, this is not a case of faking illness for material benefits like fundraisers or workman's comp. No, this is sympathy. Yeah, the benefits that these people get from this behavior are entirely psychological, and they often actually come at a significant physical or financial cost. People with Munchausen's will go out of their way to learn a lot about medical systems and rare illnesses, and can successfully fake or manipulate their way into unnecessary medications, hospital stays, and sometimes even unnecessary surgery. Fun fact, people who feign illness online for attention are apparently called quote-unquote cyber munchers, which is not what I would have <laughs> guessed that that term meant. Not good. Cyber munchers. I love it. But, uh, but yeah, Munchausen by proxy, which is also called fictitious disorder imposed on another, is a much more complicated beast. So this is a condition where a caretaker, which is usually a mother, intentionally fakes or induces illness in a dependent, which is usually her child. They might achieve this by coaching the child to report symptoms, intentionally poisoning or injuring the child, doctor shopping, just basically going from doctor to doctor to advocate for more and more treatment and tests until you find somebody who's pretty permissive, or intentionally falsifying or manipulating the results of medical tests. And the reason that they do this is for the perceived psychological benefits of being, quote, the mother of a sick child, which they see mostly as sympathy and attention. The perpetuators of classic Munchausen by proxy often really lean into the image of being a calm, self-sacrificing heroic parent who bravely cares for their seriously ill child, um, even when that, that child's illness is not real. Um, although some perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy do benefit from fundraisers or gifts as a result of their child's illness, the motivation for this behavior is not financial, or at least not prominently financial. They're in it for the psychological benefit, same as anybody else, even if it comes at immense cost and risk to the child's health. Um, luckily, Munchausen by proxy is quite rare, and it's often very hard to detect, which on the flip side makes it very difficult to study. There are potential warning signs for Munchausen by proxy that medical personnel can monitor for, but the only way to officially diagnose it is to either catch the caregiver in the act of poisoning or hurting the child, or to separate the child from the caregiver to see if they improve. The stats are pretty bleak. 93-95% to 95 of perpetrators of Munchausen by proxy are mothers. They often have histories of having been abused themselves as children, and they often have histories of having Munchausen syndrome on themselves in the victim role. Mothers who have Munchausen by proxy have higher rates of experiencing pregnancy complications. One startling fact is that uh, Munchausen by proxy can be quite fatal. Between 6-10% to 10 of documented victims of Munchausen by proxy die from it, usually from smothering, injury, starvation, or poisoning. This makes it one of the most lethal forms of child abuse. Caregivers with multiple children tend to victimize more than one child. When a study examined the siblings of confirmed victims of Munchausen by proxy, 
It found that 25% of them were dead and 61% experienced similar medical issues, which is quite chilling. And of course, perhaps the most famous survivor of Munchausen by proxy is the famous, you know, behavioral scientist slash rapper Eminem, um, who publicly accused his own mother of having Munchausen by proxy in his late 2002 single, Cleaning Out My Closet. Um, as a side note, though, before you start accusing any of your any women in your life who have two sick children of having Munchausen by proxy, it's important to keep in mind that panic about possible Munchausen by proxy is often just as harmful as the disorder itself. Munchausen by proxy is quite rare, and there's lots of other reasons why a parent might have a sick child, like them actually being sick. We've actually mentioned this before on this podcast, but it's not uncommon for women to be falsely convicted of murder in cases where their children are found to have died from natural causes or from genuine medical conditions. Two-thirds of the exonerations of female prisoners occur because it's determined that no crime took place at all, which is a very bleak statistic. It's true that women with Munchausen by proxy tend to abuse more than one of their children, but it is also true that there's a genetic component to many, many illnesses, and it is not uncommon for more than one sibling in the family to have the same health condition. So, you know, don't kidnap your neighbor's children because they've both got the sniffles. Yeah, kidnap them for other reasons. Probably one of the most famous examples of this is the case of Sally Clark, a UK woman who lost her first infant son to SIDS in 1996 and lost a second infant son to the same thing in 1998. She was suspected of Munchausen by proxy and was convicted of double, double homicide after an expert for the prosecution testified that the odds of having two SIDS death in the same affluent family was one in 73 million. Of course, that's not actually true. He got that number by taking the odds of one SIDS death, which is about one in 8,500, and squaring it. But that's not how it works. No. Like, some women never have miscarriages. Some women have lots of miscarriages. Because there's underlying health issues. <laughs> Families who experience a SIDS death are actually more likely to have a second one, not less likely, due to the shared genetic and environmental factors. If you've had one SIDS death in your family, the odds of experiencing a second can be as high as 1 in 200. So a pretty far cry from the 1 in 73 million that was quoted at this woman's trial. Sally was exonerated three years into her prison sentence after her child's medical records confirmed that he died of natural causes. But of course, she never recovered from the trauma of the trial and drank herself to death by the age of 42. So that's not a story that has a happy ending. The existence of Munchausen by proxy in medical caregivers appears to work very similar to the Munchausen by proxy seen in parents, in that the nurse or caregiver will intentionally cause an injury or medical distress to a patient and then they will make a big show of being the one to find them and administer the care that they need. They may falsify records, withhold necessary treatment, or intentionally sicken the patient to keep them in the hospital longer. The benefits to the people doing it come in the form of the admiration and attention they get from colleagues and patients' families by being the one to find them in distress and dramatically save their lives. And to illustrate an example, we will look at a killer nurse named Richard Angelo who was a famous malignant hero. So Richard Angelo was born August 29th of 1962 in Long Island, New York, to parents who both worked in education. Angelo had a pretty unremarkable middle-class upbringing. He was an honor student in school. He graduated from St. John the Baptist Diocese High School in 1980 
and then he completed a two-year nursing program at Farmingdale State College, where he maintained honors grades. Those who knew him reportedly described him as a nice boy from a nice family, which is what you say when a neighbor dies and you've never fucking met them in your lives. Personality of a tumor. You've made eye contact while taking out the garbage. (laughs) Absolutely not. You did not know this kid at all. That's fine, though. Nobody noticed anything was amiss with Richard until 1987, five years into his nursing career. So at that time, he was working at Good Samaritan Medical Center in West Palm Beach, Florida. A patient of his, 73-year-old Girolamo Cusich, reported that he had been feeling unwell after a male nurse injected something into his IV bag and he paged another nurse to assist him. His IV bag was found to have been contaminated with the muscle relaxant Pavulon, a drug used in lethal injections in some states. In high doses, it can cause cardiac arrest. Pavulon, the brand name of pancurium bromide, was also the murder weapon of choice for another angel of death, Efron Salvador, who killed somewhere between six to 200 patients while working as a respiratory therapist in Glendale, California in the 1980s. And that is quite a range. Wow. Six to 200 is range. Richard was ultimately arrested for tampering with Cusich's IV bag as he matched the description given of the nurse who had injected something in the bag. He was arrested on November 15th of 1987 and charged with assault. But yeah, unfortunately for Richard, he couldn't keep his mouth shut, and while in custody, he confessed to having poisoned numerous other patients during the seven months that he had worked at Good Samaritan Medical Center. Like many other angels of death, he was not able to give precise numbers, names, or dates for his crimes. He had done his poisoning with a combination of pavilon and anectine, which is the paralytic drug used in general anesthesia and intubation. As part of the investigation, the bodies of 30 patients who had died during his tenure at the hospital were exhumed and tested for those drugs. Unlike morphine, which breaks down in the body quickly after death, pavulon can be detected well after a person has died. Ultimately, the investigation at that hospital determined he had poisoned at least 35 people, and 10 of them had died. So these, these people are like racking up body counts without even trying. Unlike Cullen and Toppin, who were absolutely into the death part of the whole Angels of Death, Richard insisted that his motive for the poisonings had not been to kill anybody. His motive, he said, was to intentionally induce cardiac arrest so he could have the thrill of rushing in and dramatically saving the patients in front of his colleagues. He wasn't always able to save everybody, which was the problem, which was the reason for all of the deaths. Richard was held awaiting trial for over a year. Bail was set at $50,000, but he intentionally declined to pay it, saying that due to the high-profile nature of his case, he actually felt safer in jail than he was on the outside. Not entirely wrong, but also, like, I think you're saying that to be dramatic. A little bit. A little bit. In December of 1989, he was convicted of two counts of murder, one count of criminally negligent homicide, one count of manslaughter, and four counts of assault. The following month, 27-year-old Angelo received a sentence of 50 to life for his crimes, and he has been incarcerated at Great Meadow Correctional Institution ever since. He will not be eligible for parole until 2049, when he is 87 years old, so I think the world is safe from him. Don't have to worry about Richard Angelo. But yeah, so you know, all of all of this, if you've been listening to this, especially if you work in the healthcare field, you might be wondering how to spot an angel of death. So if you're wondering if maybe half of your colleagues are just smothering and fucking, fucking poisoning people left and right the moment your back is turned, fear not, there are some signs you can look out for that indicate 
that there may be an angel of death in your ranks. The most obvious sign that there might be an angel of death on the staff. Corpses? Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, the corpses are a dead giveaway. But specifically, a weirdly high instance of death whenever a particular staff member is on shift. This seems, again, wildly obvious, but this is one of the most common ways that angels of death are getting caught. Hospital authorities will run the numbers and notice a statistically significant rise in deaths on a particular ward and then start comparing those times of death to the staff schedule to see if there are patterns. So that that's typically how they're hunting for it now. All staff are going to have deaths on their watch if they work in the healthcare field long enough, especially if they work in a field like geriatrics or ICU, where it's more common to have folks pass away. But basically, if you've been on the healthcare position long enough, someone's going to die on you. But if one person tends to be on duty for a statistically unlikely amount of deaths, they're either murdering the patients or they're catastrophically bad at their jobs. Like, there, there's a point where you're kind of pushing it to claim that it's luck. And either way, they should be fired. Yeah, honestly. But in one case, they should be arrested. It, it kind of doesn't matter. It's like, oh, wow, people just sort of die when you're on. That's That just seems like we maybe shouldn't yeah. have hired you. That seems like... If you're bad enough, you should be arrested either way. Right? Like, there, there comes a point where it sort of doesn't matter why people are dying while you're on the job. It just You just need to not work there anymore. Angels of death also tend to have a history of being disciplined for performance issues at work, and they often have persistent issues with incorrect or sloppy documentation of their work, because keeping inaccurate charts and notes is sort of how they disguise what they've done. They often have a poor employment record, having been fired or asked to resign from previous jobs, and they might also tend to change jobs frequently. Additionally, angels of death tend to seek out positions where they know there will be less supervisions and fewer colleagues around to observe their work. Angels of death love nothing more than a night shift. Give them third shift all day long. They also often tend to present as, quote, type A personalities, which are people who have an unusual need for control over things. Many are loners who appear to have few relationships with friends and family and have difficulty fitting in with their colleagues. Um, Many, of course, have personal histories of mental illness, addiction, or personality disorders. So, you know, lots lots to ponder. But uh, but don't worry, though. If there's there's one comforting message I want everybody to take from this two-part series on Angels of Death, it's that although there's many examples of Angels of Death and some very high-profile ones, they're actually statistically extremely rare. It is far, far more likely that the patients you're working with are going to die from catastrophic medical staffing shortages, leading to the absence of a nurse rather than the presence of a homicidal nurse. So, you know, that's... Comforting. Yeah, you're gonna, you're not gonna die because a nurse kills you, you're gonna die because they can't find one to take care of you. So... Silver lining. Just let that, let that rattle around in your brain a little while. That's, uh, that's that. I hope you have enjoyed learning more about, um about nurses who murder people. I've been Jessica. And I have been Janelle. And this has been Histories and Mysteries. Hooray!